This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike is brought to you by Dream Symbols, manufacturers of handmade, hand-hammered symbols at very affordable prices. So please follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for at Dream Symbols and check them out. What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 108 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host who will be joining me shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. Once Mike and I get all caught up, we'll talk about one of the features in this month's MD, and that is 50 crucial jazz drumming recordings. We'll also discuss a little education, talk about how to phrase odd groupings and four-bar phrases. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out the two-box drum it, five-module, and trigger it triggers. After that, we'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Two, three, four. Oh, it's so in time. Uh, okay. Welcome in to episode, what are we, 108? 108. And, uh... The intro today was my little band, and the reason why I wanted to do that, uh, I'm not saying it'll be the intro all the time, but you know, my band, there was no band when we started this podcast, so it was kind of like, mm, the podcast was a part of it, like I remember telling you, like, dude, I jammed with a guy last night, it was so much fun, and then, oh, yeah. and then like, oh, we jammed twice, and then, oh, we got a bass player, and then all of a sudden, it's like, we have a band name, so all of that happened on this podcast, so I think... Having it as an intro just it means a lot. Like that's one of the finished songs. Our EP comes out on October fifteenth. Wow, that's and quick. Yeah, I'm excited. So um, super excited about it. And um, we Did you figure out how you're going to deliver it. Yeah, we're going to do um, kind of the Trent Reznor vibe of just get it out there and and let yeah. people enjoy it and don't worry about any kind of financial return on it. Um, so I think – and that's that's the reason we started this project in the first place was we just wanted to have some fun and, and hopefully inspire other people. I mean the music – musically, we're not trying to show how far we can take our instruments. We're just trying to give people some good thinking music and some good driving music. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're going to get it out there. So yeah, it will be on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere that we can put it out. Dig it. So we're going to wait for the inevitable implosion as well. You've got the birth, the development, yes. now what? Yeah, and then the behind the music. Like, <laughs> our, It's so funny, man. Like, We are just – I think all of us or all three of us have been in so many bands. We're just all on our best behavior to not let it become a band. And the decisions mm. happen so easily. Um, like, I mean, pretty much I came to the band and said, hey, what do you think about trashing – everything we just recorded and paid for in the studio. And they were like, yeah, I think it's a great idea. It doesn't sound anything like us. And it was like, no, 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 one of you is supposed to fight me on this because that was <laughs> we put personal money into that. Um, and, I, and then it was like, hey, what do you think uh, if I bought some really good preamps and we tried to record it here? And it's like, well, here comes the fight. And then they were like, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So then we were recording uh, one of the songs uh, two days ago, and I'm thinking, okay, here comes our first band fight. So I say... Okay, guys, I've got an artist to do the EP album cover artwork. Here are some of the things that I 
kind of found on the internet to show him for inspiration. I pull up the file, show him like five pictures. Both of them are like, dude, that stuff's amazing. And it was like, no, no. So one of you is supposed to be like, no, that's not what I'm feeling. And I, and it was, and it, it's just been, it's been heaven. So, um, yeah. So I'll let you know at, at some point the honeymoon has to end, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think once you, once it becomes a band, so if you can delay that, once it becomes yeah. like, all right, now we got to change our life around and go play right. shows and do all yeah. that. And I think that's one of the good points of, about that band is because we're in a different world and we can, you know, we could play a show to a couple thousand people by just streaming it. Um, yeah. Right. And so I, you know, I, we never really need to take it too seriously other than the music that we're trying to put out. But you know, both guys besides myself, Dean and Q, both have successful bands. They already have that in their life. I already have my job with Mike'sLessons.com, which is my true passion. So yeah, it's it's staying nice and relaxed. So we'll see. We'll yeah. see. I'll, I'll tell you guys when we have our first band fight. <laughs> the one band that uh, uh, my original project from from Brooklyn too. The other two, two band members speak Spanish as their native language. Okay, so, and. They never agree on anything right away, but it's always out of love and respect for each other and for the music. But every single decision has some sort of like, no, I don't think so. Every oh. single one. And they always go into Spanish. So I'm just sitting there like the kid, you know, between right. his mom and dad arguing. Like, <laughs> just eyes what back are and forth you like even a tennis match. talking about? <laughs> oh. like, I don't even know what you're talking about. All we're trying to decide is which photo to use on the Facebook page or See, something. See, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm so used to. I'm used to that kind of chaos over every little thing where I'm just like, my goodness, it doesn't matter that much. And this band, I think we're just kind of worn out. So... You know, if Dean came to me and said, you know, I'm thinking about uh, using a sitar for the entire album instead of a guitar, I'd be like, that's cool, man. I don't feel yeah, like fighting I mean, you. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care that much. That's as long fine. as it doesn't suck. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, and like, and I take no offense to any drum recommendations with, if they go like, hey, can you try out that cymbal again? I really, it's like, yeah, whatever. I don't, you know, normally I'd be like, uh, I'll try out whatever cymbals I want because I'm the drummer. Um, but yeah, so anyways, we're having fun. And to all of our listeners, um, uh, thanks for allowing me to use it in the intro. And uh, it means a lot that that band was born while doing this podcast. And now we're still having fun. So October 15th is the release. And I'll let you guys know more about it later. How's everything with you, bud? I think it's good. I don't know. I mean, the past couple of weeks have been like, just running and gunning, teaching and gigging and traveling, and so I—I I mean, I don't even know. I don't know right. what's happening. I, I went even and sat know. in the pit with uh, Carter McLean last night at Lion King. Checked out what he's doing over there, nice. and, and I discovered uh, mass transit in the New York area is the way to go. I'm usually drive to the city because I usually oh, play yeah. gigs like really late when buses stop or whatever, and or there'll be a lot of like changeovers with trains going from New Jersey to Brooklyn. But taking the bus from from the mall, which is like five minutes from my office, into Times Square, I mean, it was like I could take a nap. It yeah. was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and buses have that good vibration hum to them that just puts me to sleep right away because they're always going. Mm. And yeah. It, yeah, that kind of gentle shake, that's that's heaven for me. I'm, I'm out. That and bass drums, man. When I'm when I'm teaching private lessons, as soon as somebody starts laying in dooms, doom, dooms, it, it's like the vibrations go through my body and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to try to close my eyes and keep uh, nodding my head so you think I'm awake but I'm going to sleep right now like yeah, I love I love bus trips man that, those are the only problem is like if you have an old old school bus where the backrest doesn't go up to your head so you can't lean back cuz it, it like yeah, stops at your yeah. shoulders that's a yeah, rough one these are these are pretty decent I mean I really don't like the smell of diesel that's the one thing that drives okay. me you know kind of makes me nauseous by the end of the ride but yeah, I mean, it was it was nice. I got home in a half hour. I'm like, dang, what have I been driving to the city for for all these years? Now, Not on a stupid bus. I really have no clue on East Coast mass transit prices. How much is a bus trip into the city, city and back? Eight bucks one way. Okay, so probably so, what you would have cost in gas. Yeah, but the toll just to get into the city is 15 bucks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just oh, to drive a, that's a win. through the tunnel. Look yeah. at you. <laughs> Coming up on 40 years old and finally figuring out the East Coast. I love it. It's beautiful, man. It's, I mean, it's so odd for someone to be like, yeah, I prefer to drive in New York, but that's me. I prefer to just have my own car and, right. and not have to deal with 
I will say that schedules. I, yeah, exactly. I do like being on my own timeline for sure. But that's great, man. Good stuff. Yeah, All right. Well, fun. let's let's get into some uh, some drum talk because I think that's important. So in the in the current issue of Modern Drummer, you guys did a really in depth uh, article on fifty crucial jazz drumming recordings. So these yep. aren't like. 50 crucial jazz only recordings you're coming at this from a drum perspective as well yeah exactly we consulted with kenny washington if anyone is familiar with him he's kind of like the encyclopedia of jazz history and a few other people and just kind of got the feel for like if you had to pick one sid catlett record what would it be if you had to pick one philly joe jones record what would it be yeah yeah so we tried to kind of cover the entire history of jazz because 2017, believe it or not, is 100 years since the first jazz recording. Really? Yeah, the original Dixieland jazz band was was in uh, 19 or yeah 1917. Wow. Which is weird because obviously they weren't the first jazz, uh, you know, jazz group to perform, but they were sure. just the first ones to put it onto a record. So we kind of went through like 100 years of of recording and tried to pick some some benchmark tracks and. It, it was fun, and there's a lot of stuff on here that I'm I'm still kind of chopping at the bit to go back and listen to, and some things I've never heard before. But I thought maybe we should just kind of go through it and, and kind of pick some highlights because a lot of the early early stuff it's kind of hard to hear the drums. That's I think the most frustrating part about sure. the early jazz is you know the drummer's not playing the way he actually plays because they're in a they're in a room with this really medieval recording device that if you hit the bass drum that needle's going to jump out of the you know out of the grooves and ruin the right. the recording so you can't really get the f- true feeling of what did Louis Armstrong's band sound like. Right. We yeah. just don't know. Yeah, what sure. did Chick Webb really sound like? We just yeah. don't know. Yeah. And it's a shame because you know those guys were killing it, but they go in the studio and they got to like chill play with rubber spoons or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was very common for uh, all of our young listeners. That was very common of the 1930s and 40s was to <laughs> play with rubber spoons. Well, there was actually a device. I can't remember what it's called, but you can hear it on some of the uh, early Louis Armstrong records where it was like like they were using kitchen utensils, like spoons. Really. And, like little micro hi hats, like that's what he had to play because he couldn't play the actual drums. Wow! Like little little finger symbol hi hats. Yeah. So then you just become okay. I mean, that's the same as you know, if you with your band, you go to a radio station, you can't bring a drum kit. You're either slapping your legs or it's like okay, yeah, we'll yeah. make rhythm somehow. We need to keep <laughs> time for the band. But God, could you imagine doing that with a big band though? I mean, how no. would they hear yeah. any? I, I just, ugh, that's just because you know yeah, they weren't like okay, um, let's go with. Uh, trumpet three now you do your take i mean this was all you know big band recording all at once Un- unbelievable well okay well let's yeah. go through it a little bit uh do you want to start with the more uh the old stuff or the more modern stuff I, th- I mean i think i think we could probably go i mean number 12 is 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 max roach but i want to back up uh to zooty singleton Zooty Singleton was, I believe he was a New Orleans guy, but then he moved to Chicago and kind of got into the Chicago jazz scene. But there's actually an incredible recording of Zooty. Uh, it's it's the one that we listed as the also checkout. It's by Pee Wee Russell, and it's called About Face. Okay. There's an amazing drum solo in that, and I believe it was recorded in 1941, but he's playing like over-the-bar line phrasing and stuff. It's super hip. It's, it's a, mostly a snare drum, like buzz rolls and some kind of like three over four tom stuff gotcha i actually transcribed that one for the magazine before i started working here and and wow. i'm still just amazed at how what was his name again zudi singleton arthur yeah. zudi singleton and I the recording say, that i one person I love, i've never heard of yeah i mean he was kind of in that early baby dodds uh scene like he was one of the early, he was played with louis armstrong early on but he kind of made his name when he moved to chicago but yeah, that record, Pee Wee Russell, About Face, if you can find it, I have it on a CD that was called Jazz Original. It was like a compilation. The drums are recorded really well. It's one of the rare early jazz records that have like really clean-sounding drums. And he's sure. actually playing the full kit, not just micro hi-hat things. So that's my number one pick out of the first 12 I think everyone should definitely check out. All these are great, but that was one that I remember being super cool. Yeah. Um, what else we got Max Roach in here we've got Shelly Mann it's like which drummers do we think our listeners need to check out this week man I, I really think if you just look at this list I'm going through it and I, I can't think of anything that you're allowed to skip 
really, right? So yeah, I think what's really cool about this article, and hopefully this will cause some of you guys out there to at least go to the website or or, or you know go to your local drum shop and buy a copy of Modern Drummer. Um, you'd be surprised how much is is inside one issue of a great drum magazine. Um, but just to start at number one and work your way through it, um, I think would give you a nice sense of history because. You know these these are the most famous drummers of the jazz era, meaning they were also playing with the most famous artists of that era as well. So, by you know getting this specific Kenny Clark thing, you're also going to get um, you know whoever you played with, and uh, if you're listening to Max Roach, you're going to get Clifford Brown, and so it, they all kind of come together, uh, and yeah. and then it just leads you up to what I think is great about it is you start getting into Max and you go, okay, cool. I have a good representation of that. Now I get into, uh, Joe Jones and then I get into, you know, uh, maybe like we said, uh, Art Blakey. And then all of a sudden, by the time that you get a little bit further along and you get into Tane and stuff, it all makes a little more sense and you have a sense of history for it. Um, you know, for, for me, all this stuff, I kind of went backwards, you know. I I, I think maybe the uh, obviously we all as kids know about Buddy Rich and everything, and I heard that stuff. But for me, hearing um, you know the Chick Korea stuff, hearing Jaco Pastorius, that's what led me to go backwards and be like, okay, they can't. This couldn't have just started from here. So where did it really start from? And then when you hear Schofield play or something, you have a little sense of where it came from. Um, when you hear Terry Lynn Carrington play, you have a sense of like, okay, I, I can hear her influences now uh, from these drummers. So I really think that this list is just amazing f- that you guys went and did all the homework for drummers that maybe don't have a full history of jazz. Even even like myself, I mean, there's so many albums on here where I'm like, man, I've I've never heard that. Never yeah, listened to that. No. it's I mean, and I was a part of the creation of this, and there's some that I haven't heard. There's one. There's a few that I, that meant a lot to me, like Joshua Redman, Timeless Tales for Changing Absolutely. Times. That was Brian Blade, kind of really for me becoming like the best of the best in modern jazz. Because that actually a lot of, introduced me to Brian Blade. I I, I didn't know that about record? him. Yeah, I didn't know about him. I didn't know about the Fellowship. I don't even know if the Fellowship had started by then. Um, but yeah. I didn't. I, I really didn't know who he was. He wasn't being covered heavily yet at the time. And um, I think I found you know you find all these guys through someone else. You find. Brian Blade, maybe through a bass player that you're, it's like, I, I just, oh, here's a good example. I remember in the Modern Drummer Festival, starting with Horacio Hernandez, uh, who was playing bass, mm. was it John Patitucci? Yep. Yep. Okay. He then, after that day, he, there was never a drummer on stage with a bass player that, and it wasn't John Patitucci. I'm like, yeah. why does everyone choose this dude? Like, since the Modern Drummer <laughs> Festival on, you know, it was almost like, oh, you played with Horacio and you could hang with that. Uh, we <laughs> want you. So, so John Patitucci led me to so many drummers because whoever he was playing with, I was like, oh, I want to. Oh, that's this guy. That's this guy. Um, oh, interesting. So yeah, so a lot of like, I don't remember if I got to Joshua Redman from a bass player or how, but I got to Joshua Redman somehow. And then that, I was like, who the heck is this drummer? And that opened the door to Brian Blade for me. Um, you, know who got, you know how I got into Brian Blade? Hmm. This will definitely show my age. Columbia House. Columbia House? Yeah, I was a member. Remember that? The, oh, my the gosh. And yeah. You, you, put the, you the circle your 200 <laughs> uh, tapes that you want for yeah. like eight cents. Yeah. I joined that and they had, uh, I was just, they didn't have a ton of jazz. So just whatever jazz records they had, I'm like, I want that. I don't want that. And one of them was Joshua Redman live at the Village Vanguard. Yeah. Which was a two disc set. And I mean, I think that is, what a great way to be introduced to Brian Blade to hear him on a live record. I mean, mm-hmm. killing it, playing like a, you know, five minute solo on St. Thomas. And it was the first time I really noticed like the cymbal sound being different, like the hi-hats just sounded really papery and different, and that yeah. kind of got me exploring tones. I think he might have been using 16s at the time, way before. We're talking like 1996 or Oh, yeah, yeah. So. No, this is – I remember seeing that stuff and being like, but his drums don't match. Yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to do that. That's not That bass drum <laughs> didn't come with that rack tom. They're, they're different colors. Um, I mean, like you said, 96, I'm – you know, I'm, I was 19 at that time, so – yeah. I was all into Tim Alexander and having these like very polished professional kits with shiny symbols. Yeah. And then I see Brian Blade and I'm just going, what is going on? I remember seeing uh, his solo on Jazz Crimes 
and just yeah. going, uh, yeah, I'm in. This is the greatest drummer <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen, and I wish I sounded like that. And I'm going to go completely the opposite direction and sink everything I have into rock because it just seems a little more tangible for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, so yeah. I. But the thing is. I think with this list, and I'm going to use this list personally for myself so that I can go through this history, I think then when you finally reach Joshua Redman and Brian Blade, you're going to have this this great sense of history and, and lineage of, oh, okay, so now I can hear the Tony and Brian and the Elvin and Brian, and I can hear, you know, and the, and the Chick Webb, I can hear in Tony and Elvin, and, and you just have this great lineage of where it all came from and how people built on what was done right before them. Yeah, and there's that kind of like uh, the dark ages of the '80s that we kind of forget. There was some great music that came out in that time period. That's yeah. when all the you know the Went Marsalis group with Tane kind of took over, and Michael Brecker's first solo record with Jack DeJohnette came out in '87. Yeah, there's a Jaco Pastorius live uh, big band record with Peter Erskine, 1982. I remember that. So, I mean that 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 was my first time hearing Jaco, and you know I didn't know about all the fusion stuff first, but. The cool thing, too, is you can also, through this, there's so many things you can do. You can hear the history of jazz if you want. You can hear the history of jazz drumming. But you can also hear the history of recording. Because when we get into the 80s, all of a sudden it's like it's the polar opposite of the 40s and 50s where it's like, oh, this is too clear. This is too processed. Sounds like they're in, like, padded rooms. Yeah. It it, it literally sounds like they they were in the middle of a Duran Duran session and then some jazz (laughs) dudes crashed it and just was like, leave the mics up. Leave everything how it is. We're just going to play these instruments um but and then right around the mid 90s you start hearing it pushed to a more natural thing and then finally when we get to the 2000s it's like okay we have all the modern recording techniques but let's not color it so much let's not saturate it so much and compress it so much and let's just let let it be like you were in the room with these guys and now we're finally at this place where you know recordings have this beautiful clear sound where we can hear everything but it also isn't like you said in a padded room it's 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 kind of you get to hear the hear the vibe that's going on. So, yeah. so so guys, definitely check that out. It's called 50 Crucial Jazz Drumming Recordings. It's in the October issue of Modern Drummer. Go to your local drum shop and pick that up. All right. Now, let's talk a little education. Mm-hmm. Odd groupings in four-bar phrases. Yep. You know, I use this every day. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I know you do, dude. I know on those pop gigs, you're like, you know what's going to help this verse? Some odd groupings in four-bar phrases. Um I think I think what's really helpful with this is hearing odd groupings in four-bar phrases or maybe even two-bar phrases so that when you are, as a pocket drummer, holding it down for a musician that might be playing that kind of stuff, you can hang in there. I mean, the, mm-hmm. if I'm playing this and somebody starts playing, you know, groups of five, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, I mean, that, I, the first time I heard that, that scared the hell out of me. Or threes, bump, jump, dump, 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 dump. I was like, wait, am I supposed to do that? Dump, dump, dump. Do I jump in with you? So I think being able to play these allows you to be able to hear them right on. Uh, I'm supposed to update something on the other computer. (laughs) There's a new update for Lightroom on my other computer. So there you go. Maybe I'll turn the sound down on that. Book-a-da-ding. Anyways. Um, like we just powered up on the video game or something I know. just happened. Um, so, yeah. So, I <laughs> I use odd groupings in almost all of my improvisational stuff. So, I really do like this stuff. Now, keeping track of it as it's going over the bar line in four-bar phrases is tough. You know, if you think even just mm-hmm. – let's just talk about what a, a, a grouping is. Guys, so if, if I'm talking about 16th notes, which is naturally a grouping of four per pulse if we're in 4-4 four, four time – you have one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So that rate of speed, those 16th notes, those can remain the same. But inside of that rate, you don't have to say one, two, three, four. You could say one, two, three, 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 one, two, three. The problem is, can you keep track of time? If I go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Do you know where you are in time? Did I stop snapping on two or three? So being able to keep track of one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four and being able to go over that bar line with those odd groupings, that's not an easy thing to do, especially like in Joel Rothman's uh, 
article that we're talking about when you start changing those groupings of threes and mm. fives and sevens and you're going, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, you get a little bit lost. So I think practicing this stuff is really important to understanding where you are in that timeline. Do you, this is something I'm always, it's like chicken or the egg. Do you allow the math, you just trust the math and then figure out how it resolves or do you force yourself to keep track of the pulse i don't know which way to do first i've always kind of been the mindset of the pulse you can never lose track of the pulse i never want to just say okay i know that 16 can be divided into these ways and i'll just count those ways and know it always lands on one because i feel like for me the time would drift more easily that way Right. So I might, I might just lose track of one of the groupings and just screw everything up. Yeah, I use the math to make the exercise. And then once I've, so I know that any two groups of three with two groups of five makes 16. So three, five, five, three, right. three, three, five, five. Um, <clears throat> and so I figure out what is my subdivision. And let's say it's 16th notes. That gives me 16 total notes to deal with. And then I can do three, seven, three, three. That makes 16 notes. Mm-hmm. But. As soon as I'm practicing it, I don't allow myself to count or keep track. I have to learn. I actually do it by singing. So if it's three, seven, seven, three, I go jump, 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 jump to one, two, three, four. Bump, 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 one, two, three. So I need to be able to at least feel where those odd groupings line up with the pulse. Um, mm. Instead of going one two three one two three four five six stuff one two three one two three out yay yeah. like I don't yeah, do yeah. that but when I'm creating the exercise then maybe I do think of the math just because um, I want to know where it comes out the other thing I do a lot of times is I just round it off I'd say okay I'm going to play odd groupings in two bar phrases and then I just you know I round it off maybe it's you know three five five three 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 and then I do like a plus two two like a right left to get me out of it um, yeah. But yeah, I don't. Do you ever not resolve them? Do you ever? I mean, I I practice a lot of not starting on one and not ending on one. Yes, absolutely. Is that a a deliberate practice technique for you? Yeah, it's after I've achieved the downbeats from one downbeat to the next. um, You know, in in two bar phrases or four bar phrases. Then yeah, like I'll say, okay, now all of my groupings are going to start on the e of one, and let's say that I come out on the and of one in the, you know, on the third bar. Um, but, but at some point, the whole reason to do math in music is to then forget all the math so that you can be musical. Right. Um, I want to be, if I'm here in the 16th note feel, I want to be thinking bump, 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 but I have no idea if those, you know, it's like I know those were odd groupings, threes, fives, and sevens, but I wasn't thinking three, five, five, five seven, seven. Duck, duck. Yeah, like yeah. my hard drive would Just freeze. Flows, yeah. But the thing is, like, I, I guess where I kind of differ from other drum clinicians is they assume that everyone can do that. My assumption is, no, you can't do that. So how could you possibly be musical with content and vocabulary that you don't even have yet? Um, most clinicians and most educators have forgot that they ever learned this stuff in the first place. And it's mm-hmm. my job to always stay in the 17-year-old version of me that couldn't do this, had to learn it, and then how many years did it take for it to come out of me, like natural vocabulary? And that's that's a process for sure. I find it's interesting. I mean, I think Dave Dicenzo has a great way of teaching you know, how to not be locked into the downbeat for everything. Uh, but I'm always amazed when I, when I hear drummers, I guess – they're kind of all following in, in Vinnie Cagliari's footsteps of where they can, or Elvin, where they can accent with a big crash on spots that aren't downbeat, and knowing that that's going to screw screw everyone who's listening up, right. but then they don't actually lose it. Like I don't have enough trust in myself or the people I'm listening that are listening to me to be like, I'm going to throw this huge accent on the uh of three, and it's going to sound like the one by the way I phrased everything before that. But nope, that's not the one. Like I, right? I don't feel secure to do that. I'm afraid like you the know, bass player is going to shift, and then we're all going to be screwed. I think that that's a big thing that we've you and I have never talked about. Is one thing that can differentiate, differentiate. Yeah, you know what word I'm trying to say. <laughs> differentiate is that a word? Yeah, that that's okay. the word. Okay. Um, drummers from each other especially professional drummers is how much faith they have in the audience you know um i I think when i think of somebody like what um 
maybe Ari Honig would play. That's saying I've got so much faith in this audience that they can handle this. Um, that they'll yeah. the, and and even, they may not know what I'm doing, but I, I have faith that they're going to grasp where I'm headed. Um, and then somebody that's just playing like pop is saying, no, I you know this is a simple audience. I'm going to play simple stuff and you'll be able to follow it. And so it's, that's a big thing when you're coming up with content for like your most recent clinic or when I'm coming up with content for clinics and camps, how much faith do you have in your audience that they can hang with this stuff? You know, Mm -hmm. if you pass them by, you're going to lose them. And then they're just kind of bystanders while you're doing your thing. Um, yeah. The worst case scenario is they're not even just bystanders. They actually think you're wrong because they can't handle what you're playing. Yeah. Right. Or it just starts to sound like nonsense. Like, how, how do you make that's Again, I think that's why Dave Dicenzo is, is, a, is amazing because he can play that stuff, but you're never, for a second, thinking he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, he's right. got ultimate control over these ideas, even yep. though he's, he's displacing the downbeat in, in unique ways. But you hear guys are just kind of more off the cuff, kind of riffing. It, to me, sometimes it just sounds like noise because they're just accenting so much and they're playing so many licks. Even though there might be some amazing groupings and, and resolutions and you know displaced beats and stuff, it just sounds like they're just random. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I don't think anyone can hear that and be like, oh, yeah, he did a seven there, he did a five there, and right. he accented on the, the end of three. I'm like, it just sounds like you're just randomly hitting stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I think all of this stuff, the reason to practice it on such a deep level is so that it becomes an you're actually expressing yourself. but And I think what you're talking about is when somebody actually doesn't have anything to say, they just have a huge vocabulary. But they don't yeah, they really have anything to say. they rip on the drums. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we find the people that really have something to say, we actually forgive their maybe inefficiencies in technique um, or sound because they have something to say. Um, I mean, obviously, we have our Vinnies of the world that – have the flawless technique and the flawless skill set and have something to say. But there are people where I really wouldn't pick apart their drum tones or their technique or anything if it was bad or even their timing if they really had something to say on the instrument. Um, That's true. Yeah, and I've, I've like, Jack D. Jeanette's kind of a one for me that I've tried to transcribe his stuff. And if you and if you take, like, a very strict, like, I'm going to find the, the pulse and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to, you know, transcribe it exactly to my pulse – He's not always playing perfect four-bar phrases. He's right. he's allowing himself some latitude so his phrases can kind of stretch. But he knows that his band members can hear what he's doing and they trust him and they're with right. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's I the mean, same thing with like Philly Joe Jones. If you try to like put a click track to his recordings and be super strict about how you transcribe it or Blakey, you're going to discover yeah, that they, sure. they drop beats. They drop a couple beats here and there. But yeah. the phrasing is so strong that – if you allow yourself just to go with them and, and hear where it, where it's where it's going, then you're you're golden. But if you then try to be like, or maybe he played a five over four there, like ah, chances are Blakey didn't play a five right. over four. <laughs> yeah, he just sped up or just left out an eighth note or something. Right. So I think that's another thing for me, like not being afraid to 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 admit that okay, I, I took some liberties with that four bar phrase. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't totally. there's no metronome on. I just decided to play a little bit longer from beat four. Yeah, for sure. But, well, um, guys, I mean, that, I'm really excited that this uh, uh, that Joel Rothman's article led us to this conversation. We got a, a <laughs> deep conversation out of that. So check out uh, how to phrase odd groupings and four bar phrases in the October issue, and it's it just starts you off with uh, from memory. I think it's like an eighth note followed by three sixteenths and then an eighth. Um, Yep. Yeah, and he's splitting dun, dun, it up dun, a lot between dun, the ride symbol and the snare. Yeah, it starts there and then just goes further and further and further until you're all the way into kind of what we were talking about. And it's all written in eighth notes, so it's pretty easy to disseminate the pulse and everything. Yep, all right, well, easy. let's get into some gear review. It is time to check out something. Not yet. No, we've got to take a listen to our sponsors. Uh, so Dream Symbols, thanks for supporting the show this week. What we're going to drop in is some audio from a video that they just posted with Scott Pellegrom. Uh, doing some pretty crazy stuff with their RE. It's basically their recycled symbols that they turn into effect symbols. So they've got the Naughty Saucer, which is, it looks like a vinyl record with the center punched out, but it's made of bronze. And then there are crop circles, which have tambourine jingles on it. So let's check out what crazy Scott's doing. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Scott's a freak, right? <laughs> He's a beautiful, beautiful, furry little freak. <laughs> Love that guy. <laughs> He's amazing, dude. I mean, you would think like if you follow, if you guys follow Scott Pellegrom, you would think that eventually he's going to run out of creatively cool stuff to do, but he doesn't. No, definitely not. Yeah. And I'd like that he's just doing his own thing. I mean, it's. Yeah. He's a perfect dream symbol artist, too. Um, you know, I think they, they make stuff that complements his style. So um, it's really cool. So there you go. Check out all of that stuff from Dream. Yep. And uh, and they, they post some really good content on their social media pages. So definitely check out uh, Dream Symbols on Facebook, just facebook.com slash Dream Symbols, as well as Instagram. Yeah, that video was posted September 4th if you want to go through their feed. And, and if you're just listening, the, the ride symbol has one of the naughty saucers just kind of hanging on it. So it gives it kind of a rattly sound. He's got crop circles on the tom, the floor tom, all kinds of cool stuff. So check him out. So now awesome. we're going to move all into right. the two box sugar system, which I've been using for about a month now in my studio. I finally, oh really? I finally took it off because I had to do some other stuff. But it was it's just super fun to have just weird stuff at your disposal when you're. You know, making music for no one in your own studio. <laughs> so, is this what you've been using when you're doing all of your Instagram videos and stuff? Yeah, probably for the past, I don't know, maybe a month. Anytime I, okay. you know, you hear kind of not loops, but any kind of like electronic layered sounds, it's been it's been with this. So, what it is is they have two boxes. Um, I believe the creator was the original. Uh, D drum. He he created D drum back in the back in the day. Oh really? So he's you know got a long history with electronics, but the two box system, which includes what they call the Drummit uh, five module, it comes with a bunch of stuff in it already. But the the real power of it is you can very easily load in whatever you want. It's kind of an open interface okay. thing. So it's an open interface. Yeah. Nice. And then they have their own triggers. So they sent the module and a full set of triggers. So I just use them on my acoustic kit. And I didn't load in any sounds. I'll just mess around with what they already have. Um, uh-huh. There's some cool stuff in there. They've got some kind of DJ shadow sounding piano loops and bass lines and stuff. Really? Yeah, tons of fun. Um, and then there's nice. just some, you know, like huge, like I, I, I used, what was I using? I was using a 20-inch bass drum with like a ton of muffling in it. But I triggered like an open, like 26-inch bass drum sample. And I and I didn't tell anyone I was doing that on this one video, and I had a, a bunch of comments like, "Man, how'd you get that huge bass drum sound out of that little drum?" Really? Because you really it, nice. it just sounded real. It just sounded like I was playing a giant twenty six inch bass drum. So it's a cool it's a cool uh, cool system. Um, it'd be ideal. I mean, the 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 module is also designed for pads, so you can have a full set of pads, like a full six piece kit or something like that, if you wanted to, but. Yeah, the trigger system is neat. I mean, I I use triggers a lot, and on gigs that you wouldn't think would require it, club gigs when the bass drum just needs some subtle amplification, and we don't want to run the sure. mic. Yeah, we've talked about that before, yeah. and I think that's a great idea. If, if you're dealing with a club that doesn't have a great PA system or isn't even a great room, then a triggered kick is going to, you know, it's going to guarantee that you have a good sound. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to worry about EQing it. You just turn it on, and it works. Uh, so that's that. I mean, it's it's cool. I think. Do you know? Do they sell that um, module by itself? It should be available. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just wondering um, for the people that are buying things like um, the Aquarian Super Pads that are you know that are potentially um, potentially triggers. You know, um, those or anybody else that's already got an electric kit that maybe wants a different brain. I wonder if that brain's somewhat affordable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, it's pro it's pro level. Um, okay, gotcha. Like I use the the Roland TM2, which is a it's a two channel 
interface where you can you can trigger kick and snare, or you can you can tr- actually trigger four pads if you use a splitter, or you can have the snare do a rim shot and center or whatever. But that's that's super affordable and it's compact and there's not a lot of flexibility. Gotcha. This you could you could this run is the, triggers this is a on big boy brain. everything. Gotcha. And it has four gigabytes of uh, flash memory. Which is, oh, jeez, yeah, that's pretty great. insane. That's more than enough. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty cool. The triggers, uh, they're a little bit sleeker than some of the other designs. They kind of sit pretty tight to the hoop. Uh, I did have a slight issue with the trigger sticking to the head, which I didn't expect. So when I removed the trigger, okay. I had to be careful not to like rip the the mic off of the the trigger casing. It came off. It didn't leave any residue or anything, but it just kind of gripped it a little bit. Sure. Uh, that'd just be one word of caution to make sure you don't you know, aggressively remove it and just tear the thing apart. But <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Do you have any audio of you playing this? Stuff? I do. So we'll drop in just a few of the presets. I kind of, I think I put like a ten-minute video up on our website, but we'll just grab a couple. So these are all stock sounds. I didn't do any tweaks. I didn't adjust them at all. So let's check out a few of them. Ever want that thing? Do you know that I would never go home to the wife? <laughs> I'd play that thing all day long. I know. Man. That, that preset seventy four was cool because it had like a loop, percussion yeah. loop, a bass loop, and then the snare sample was like a white noise, kind of like the dream crop circle thing. But it was it was just a sample. I didn't change the snare drum at all, and I didn't change any of the drum acoustic sounds at all. And it just transformed wow. my recording. Made me play differently. Made me practice differently because some of them. Which was cool. The maybe the floor tom loop was an on off. So if you hit it once, it starts it, and you hit it the second time, it stops it. But then the rack tom loop would be an automatic restart, continuous. So you'd, oh, you'd hit okay. it, and then if you hit it again, it would just restart the loop. So oh, you nice. could do some like derp, derp, glitchy. Derp, derp, derp. Yeah, you could do real kind yeah. of glitchy things, or you could kind of flip the beat around. So it was just it just made me practice more musically. It was fun. Yeah, those, that was awesome, man. All right, well, you can check that stuff out. Um, you can also you can check it out on moderndrummer.com, but I also went to their website, which is just uh, twobox.se. So check that out. Yeah, Twobox is distributed by Hoshino, which is also distributing Tama drums. Tama. So, yeah, so the, I think any of your local Tama dealers could probably get you information on this stuff as well. There you go. Very cool. All right, let's get into some of the listener questions. All right, this is this is appropriate and sadly so. So this one came from Miles. What tips do you have for playing a drum solo under three minutes, as in the guitar center drum off? Ah, so we. Sorry, Miles. <laughs> you ain't gonna get a chance to do that. Yeah, I don't know if everyone heard, but Guitar Center has ceased the drum off for for this year and next year. Uh, so do we get into this now or do we save this for next week? Because I kind of feel like drum contests should be their own segment. That's a 10-minute segment because we have such up-and-down opinions about them. Yeah, maybe we can just focus on the if you had to play a three-minute drum solo, what would you do? There we go. Three minutes is a lot longer than you think. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, 
feel free to record yourself doing a 16 bar solo and then look at the stopwatch. <laughs> you didn't get very far into that thing. And the 16 bars is a long solo in a musical setting. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, th- three minutes, you better tell a story. I would, I would say that right away. Um, don't just rip for three minutes. You're going to run out of ideas in the first 30 seconds. Uh, you need to, you need to build this thing up, have a, you know, just like any story you need to have, um, a beginning. You need to introduce some concepts. You need to build those. Um, you have to have chapters, and then eventually you have to have a climax and have a way to get out of this story. So, um, I always think of three-minute solos for me have to have, in business terms, like an entrance strategy and an exit strategy. Mm. Uh, I, I need to know how I'm getting there, and I need to know how I'm getting out. Otherwise, I'm just kind of lost and in jam land. Um, the other thing that I think matters too is. Because he referenced the drum off, let's assume that he's not playing with other musicians. There's no accompaniment. Yeah. There's no backing tracks. This is just open solo. That's a scary thing. Have you ever, I mean, in your, I know you probably had to when you're in college, but in your professional career, have you ever had to play an actual open drum solo by yourself? No, not not in a professional context. I mean, it was all within, I mean, that's not true. I mean, I did a lot of jazz gigs when I was, you know, in that world, and inevitably there'd be one or two songs that have some, some time for me to not be adhering to the form or whatever, but okay, in, okay. A, in a rock or a pop or any other world, or even a walk out to a crowd and just do yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, no, it's it's for, in my world. That's the last thing that anyone wants to see right. is each musician play an <laughs> open solo for three minutes. Sure. sure. That said, <clears throat> I do think that we overlook the power of a good groove when we're given the opportunity to solo. It doesn't totally have to agree. become an ego fest and how fast and hard can I play? I mean, I get, I see all these videos because we get sent links to drum solos all the time. And I know I am really bored with the how animalistic can you play the drums approach to a solo. It's exciting, totally. sure, to go to a show and see someone just, you know, obliterate the kit. But I'm just bored with it. I mean, I've seen Buddy Rich. I've seen guys who can play, Dennis Chambers, who can play faster than all of us. So what are you going to do? So I think overlooking the power of just lay down a beat. Chad Smith does that. And it's, I mean, some of his solos, quote unquote solos, are just him playing a groove for like 10 minutes with some fills. And everyone in the audience is just mesmerized by his pocket. Yeah, I think uh, there's, even for the studied drummer, there's still a fact that we're human beings and we like, you know, a pulse. We like something yeah. that we can follow. We want to be a part of the journey. I mean, you have to understand too, like, and this is talking to our audience, when you're playing a drum solo, everyone in the crowd is either completely on board with you or they're putting themselves in your shoes. <laughs> and they're thinking the whole time, could I do that? Could I do that? And when when the answer is yes, that's not a bad thing. Right. That yeah. makes them feel good. They're excited. They don't want to be going like, nope, I could never do that. Nope, I should just go home and quit and uh, go home and put some diesel fuel on my drum set and light it up. <laughs> like, that's not a great way to go. So you want to be a little bit more tangible where people are like, I think I could do that. And it's like, cool. And everyone's on board and they're all excited. And then especially when you get to that level of like maybe a Steve Jordan solo where it's like, I think I could do all of those notes and I don't think I could ever make any of them feel like that. Then it gives you both. It's mm-hmm. like I can play that, but I still have so far to go. I think those are those are kind of my favorite things. Um, I, you know, I, I still look back at Nathaniel T- Townsley's solo mm-hmm. um, when he played your guys' festival. And I think like there's very few things physically that I can't do in that solo, but there's almost nothing in that solo that I can do and make it sound the way he made it sound in that moment. Yeah, the choice. So I still yeah. have... S- yeah, so far to go. Every once in a while, someone will actually do it where I can't do anything they're doing and I still enjoy it. That would be the Dave DeCenzo solo at MD yeah. um, and then anything that Vinnie Kelly has ever played. <laughs> yeah. So. so, I mean, yeah, I guess the only thing I can add to that is three minutes is a long time, but it's not a long enough time for you to display every technique known to man. It's like just pick no. one or two concepts, have an A and a B and yeah. get from one to the other and, and don't forget that people like to hear the drums do what they're supposed to do, which is play a groove and Agreed. and then you're good to go. I would pick two groove environments to explore. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you're here you can explore this for a full minute and a half. Yeah. Easily, I can add yeah. one sixteenth note and now it just changed. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so 
so and then you can build that and build that and build that. And the other thing too is you can change tempos in a solo and you don't even have to make a transition smooth. You can just do it. So if I'm here and with pure confidence, I go, everyone will accept it. We're fine. Yeah. No one cares yeah. how I got there. Like you know, it's like, it's yeah. just, yeah, it's just really in the, in the performer, if if the performer looks at the crowd and says, "Are you guys cool? Was that all right?" Then it's a game over. Yeah, that's true. But if you on your face are like, "Hell yeah, that was cool," then the crowd will buy into <laughs> it for sure. You know, I thought I thought it was so so reassuring when I saw the Keith Carlock uh, DVD when they explained the um, up and down. Yeah, the Wayne Grant. Like I thought for sure they were doing some like five over four modulations. Like no, we're just going to play faster. And because we've played yeah. so much together, we all know exactly how much to change but there's no math there's no high like high arithmetic involved it's just that was crazy faster. i loved it i was like ah of course yeah. just wayne walks over to me he says down and we slow we just down slow down like, <laughs> oh yeah i guess you could just no do the logic it could um, be eight bars in it could be 32 bars in doesn't matter so yeah i i feel it as like just kind of a little bit of that musician add where wayne's just like yeah i'm kind of bored of this tempo we should change it <laughs> yeah like, oh, okay. We've never changed it before, but all right, let's do it. All right, next question. This one comes from Carson. Um, I may have an opportunity to be a drum tech on the road. I've never done this before, but I'm very passionate about tuning drums. What other responsibilities do you look for in a drum tech? Man, I had a drum tech for six years, and personality was all that mattered to me. Him doing his job never even, honestly, it never even occurred to me. When, when we took him out, uh, his name was Travis. When we took Travis out, he was a friend of ours from high school, and we took him because he had he never played an instrument in his life, knew nothing about the music industry, but he was always like the cream in our coffee of group of friends. He always calmed every situation mm. down. Yeah, he was easy to get along with. He didn't have any bad habits. You know, he he drank enough to be social, which makes him fit in with who you know the band world. But he never drank enough to get sloppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, no drugs, no um, smoking or anything. So. Honestly, we just chose him for that, and we figured, dude, by show five, you'll be fine. It's, you know, (laughs) take a Polaroid picture of my drum set after I set it up and try to recreate that, (laughs) you know, like, and then, but the great thing is, so he got so good at his job that when we got off the road, Limp Biscuit stole him from us, paid him triple, and we never got him back. Uh, Well, that's the way it works. A good, that's a, they were just like duties. A good drum tech is, is, I mean, that's gold. I mean, that's, Absolutely. You can't really, um, I mean, you can't force, you, I think you got lucky. That could have been a disaster if if his personality would, wouldn't have been the right fix. I think you got to be very meticulous. You got to be willing to, to right. get there early and stay late. You've got to be willing to, you know, be out in the heat. When everyone else is having fun, you got to be sleeping because you're the one that has to get up at three in the morning to load in. We chose him as a person, not as like, oh, he knows, he works at Guitar Center. He knows so much about every tension rod it was like dude i don't i can do half of that stuff mm-hmm. i don't care um i can do all of it if i if you know if i had the time the problem is and just for those of you guys that you know maybe have not had the chance to tour it's not that the drummer is too lazy to set up their kit it's that i'm not around you're doing radio interviews all day long for the city that you're visiting so you literally you show up to sound check drop your gear off and then you go and do radio interviews for four hours, come back, and you expect that your gear is set up so that you can do the sound check. So it's not like we're all just sitting back there with our feet up on chairs watching the, this <laughs> poor guy set up all of our gear. It's like we're not there to do it. So so techs are really important. The other thing is it's important that a tech can actually have enough attention to get through a 45-minute set of music while watching for every single problem yeah. that happens. Yeah. You know, you are – you're the ball boy at the tennis thing. You you just have to sprint out on stage, fix that snare stand, and get out of the way. So I would say more than anything, just work on being as mellow as possible and, and understand that it is a ton of work. Yeah, and I'm not being afraid to just make things happen. Like you're going to have to fix broken hardware without having a guitar center nearby. Like what do you do yep. when you need to fix a hi-hat stand? Like just problem solving. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a unique skill set that I think not everyone is cut out to do. I think it... I think you have to be almost like a the mentality of a construction worker. Like I'm going to work. I'm, yes. I'm I enjoy hard work because it ain't easy. 
Man, one thing that no one ever thinks about because they have this like summer festival tour thing in their head. They don't understand like, hey, just so you know, you will be in Michigan or Minnesota in the dead of winter and there's no loading dock. (laughs) You walk outside in negative 10 degree weather with heavy cases. You smash your finger in the door. It. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just saying it's real work, man. (laughs) Whatever money you get paid, you deserve it. And then some. All right, let's do one last one. One more. This one is from Sanjay. Um, He's he's referencing a clinic with Dave Elich where where Dave talked about practicing over three to four hours a day may be too much. And at at a certain point, that time might be best spent doing something else. Um, but mm. I've heard stories about Tony Williams practicing eight hours a day for years, so I'm struggling to find a balance. I'm practicing a lot and not burning out, so there's no fear of that. But I'm just wondering where you guys have found diminishing returns and if there's a point where I'm better off learning another instrument or doing something else rather than practicing. I think it's a great, great question. I think Agreed. I think he sh- I think you're very fortunate to have that much time to practice. I don't know how old you are, but for me that that those era that era of practice was when I had no responsibilities, so I could just spend my summer practicing or or one thing that that one of my college professors had to remind me was practicing doesn't mean you're actually in the woodshed moving sticks and hitting drums that that's one part of practicing but if you're rehearsing with a band that's practicing if you're performing playing recitals that's practicing if you're listening if to you're music, listening if you're watching other people yeah. play so I think that Tony Williams the myth of I, I'm in the woodshed for eight hours a day maybe some people did that I think I probably maxed out at five hours a day at my peak yeah of and, that, and honestly like exactly and like you said that was at a time where my life allowed for it I, I you know practice a little bit in the morning then we have you you know guys like you and myself had probably minimum of three classes in school that were music related yeah. I had jazz band concert band That's all practice wind yeah. ensemble marching band uh, com- yeah. marching band combo after you know uh at eighth period and zero period um so and then I get home and from it's like well I can make noise until 8 p.m. so so that was a, a different part of my life and um so i think sanjay the big thing is if you're enjoying it and you're and you're seeing progress soak it up because you might not have this type of lifestyle forever but like mike said make sure that your practice isn't just you woodshedding that it's like that you look actively and say okay in a in a one hour driving radius where is the next great show that i can see mm-hmm. you know are there any jazz artists coming to your town or rock artists doesn't even matter but go see live music being played by your idols so that you always have something fresh in your mind of what you're trying to achieve um you know sit down and put on headphones rather than uh earbuds like put on good high quality headphones and listen to an old jazz record and be active yeah you know? that's all practice i mean i, I would one physical thing i would just pay attention to your body and not try to force it i mean i I, I definitely over-practiced technique and stuff when I was a kid, and it caused some tendonitis. In college, I had to deal with tendonitis because I was trying to force my body to play at a speed and, and a technical level that I just wasn't ready for yet. So I think there is a danger right. of overworking. And I've seen in the past year, I practiced 10, 15 minutes of technique a day, and that's it. I don't, I don't do any more than that. I've seen more growth in this year than I did my entire college career. Really? Because there's more wow. rest. I'm being more conscious of how I'm, I'm not trying to force my body to do more that it can do. I'm letting it gradually right. rebuild and and pushing it just enough to you know feel that I'm the muscles are getting a workout, but not right. overstraining the tendons. I mean, marching band in college was for me it was just so intense and and just too much. I mean, four hours of playing on a Kevlar head, and I ended up with tendonitis. I definitely learned a ton, but. I, it, it, it might have also hindered me in the long run because I don't think I could sure. play with the endurance that I would have had I not had tendonitis really bad. Like I'm, I still get flare ups every once in a while with just some soreness and stuff. So you know, just pay attention to your body and don't don't try to force the physical side of it. I think. And then right. No, I, I totally agree with all of that, and I think that that's that's why it's good to break things up with listening, watching videos. All of that's considered practice. So, right on. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for your questions. Please keep sending those in to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. And you can always send audio questions as well. I'm sure at some point we'll get to a uh, an episode of audio questions because it's always great to hear you guys' voices. Now it is time for our picks of the week. And this is going to be – oh, man. 
I was going to say this might be a joint pick of the week because you sent it to me and then I couldn't stop listening to it. So I say let's go with our first ever joint pick of the <laughs> All week. All right. Um, this is awesome. Yeah. So you want to go is first? Is this new? Yeah. Just no, no, up. no. You Go ahead. So Mark Heaney is uh, a drummer in the UK. He, I, he came to my attention when he was in the, the punk band Gang of Four. Uh, and he's, he's since left that band. But they'd made a record, I Need to Find It, that I think everyone should check out. Um, because if you know Gang of Four, they're kind of like a, you know, a post-punk kind of band with the drumming in, on the earlier stuff was, was interesting, but you know, kind of remedial. But when he joined the band, it was like, whoa, what is going on? A lot of kind of electronica, but definitely live. And he was using multiple hi-hats and doing some cool stuff. So anyway, he's got us a new solo project. He's on a few solo albums, uh, but the latest one is called Fortunes. And it's it's a it's awesome. Dude. He's improvising live drums. I can't drums even tell what's going on. ambient man. stuff. All of it was recorded with three mics, I believe, just him in, a, in his rehearsal room. He's just jamming over ambient things that he creates on keyboards and his computer and stuff. He kind of hit a home run, I think, with this one. Yeah, I mean, it obviously ap- appeals to yours and my taste for Critters Buggin' and, and stuff of that nature. But, you know, I had, um, it's funny, Modern Drummer Magazine is responsible for me getting his first solo album, which was Drum Room, yeah, right. in 2014. And I got that just because I was like, I remember just thinking, hey, there's a drummer that has an album. Yeah. I want that. And I I dug it, but not to the level. It was like, cool, this just isn't quite my thing, but he's clearly a stud. But then when I heard this, when I heard Fortunes, I was like, oh, this is the evolution, mm-hmm. man. Like, it's not him saying, oh, yeah, I have more material in the exact same style that I've been doing for the last three years. Mm-hmm. There was so much growth from 2014 to 2017 in this. Um, yeah, I was blown away by this. That's why... I decided to shelve my pick of the week. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really Which, good. by the way, I need to tell you, we got a problem. With? you know, Okay, you know how I had that watch thing going on yeah. where I just couldn't stop? Yeah. Out, outboard gear. Oh, come on. No, don't go there, Bro. man. <laughs> I, I, I just I ordered uh, a uh, uh, Universal Audio uh, 1176 what? compressor. Yeah. See, here's the problem. We'll get back to Marquini in a second. In a second, but the problem is, I only have two microphones, so it's kind of almost affordable for me to go bananas. Because I'm like, well, I only need two of them. Oh no, uh, dude, it's a problem. So okay, go ahead and get some full tech EQs and be done with it. Like, and get some distressors. Dude, get some distressors. You got that? Sound. I mean, it never ends, brother. I know. <laughs> I know. Trust me, I have a, a, a Neve. Uh, uh, two channel EQ, like sitting in my cart on uh, Sweetwater. <laughs> <sighs> Goodness gracious! Anyways, uh, so yeah, back to Marquini. Yeah, so Mark's uh, the news. Uh, he just put it out. He just sent me a link to check out. It's, it's if you go to marquini.bandcamp.com, you'll you'll be able to you know you could purchase it for whatever price you'd like, or you can you know, stream it and check it out. But definitely support him. It. He's he's a badass. He's kind of an uncompromising artist that i i love it i mean he's but the gang of the gang of the gang of four record that i really really liked was called content so if you want to hear him play with a band it's again it's that kind of like post-punk uh really interesting stuff the drumming is i still love listening to that record but yeah marquini follow him online too he's got facebook and all that stuff cool dude definitely and yeah like i said as soon as i heard that when you sent it to me i was like oh i think this is the guy and then like his album cover was on there. I'm like, yeah, I remember buying this three years yeah, ago yeah. on iTunes and really was like, wow, that was really cool. But when I heard this, it was like, okay, I'm in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love this stuff. And the cool thing too is like, you know, some of these songs are three minutes, three and a half minutes. So it's not like every song is this nine minute drum odyssey. Like these really have, they're quite tangible. Yeah. You know, you kind of yes. dig on them and you're like, exactly. cool, that was an adventure. It's a drum, it's a badass drum record that is really satisfying to listen to, which is so hard to come by. Uh, and he's got some totally videos agree. of him, I think, uh, like new videos of him playing some of this stuff, too. Because I'm pretty sure the drumming is all one take through on the record. Just him playing through Stuck. the track. Yeah, he's he's kind of a freak. So uh, Mark Heaney, Fortunes, check him out. All right. Everybody, if you can, go over to iTunes or wherever you get our podcast from and give us a nice review and a high rating. That helps other drummers find this podcast, which means a lot to us. Uh, the drum industry is sometimes a little 
slow and a little behind compared to the rest of the world. So that means that um, we are five years away from you know everyone understanding that podcasts are a thing. So <laughs> yeah. it's gonna be it's gonna be cool when we get there. <laughs> but uh, Mike and I are having a blast. 108 episodes down, and you have to you know get through a, a little bit of our blabber, but we're having fun. So everyone have a great day, Mike. I will see you next week, buddy. See ya. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.